Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 25. In this quarter century edition, we're going to be talking about important long-term issues in development. And my first guest is Alex Evans from the Centre on International Cooperation at New York University. Alex runs CIC's work on climate change, resource scarcity and global public goods. And he's also one of the driving forces behind the Global Dashboard website on international issues. He's recently finished a project with Chatham House on rising food prices and was, before that, special advisor to Hilary Benn, then the UK Secretary of State for International Development. Alex, I can't believe it's taken us so long to get you on Development Drums. It's great to have you. Hi, Owen. Thanks for having me. And I'm even more thrilled to be joined by Melanie Mera. Melanie is the founder of the Centre for Social Markets, which works on sustainability and corporate responsibility in India and the diaspora. Melanie has worked on sustainability, on development, gender and human rights issues for two decades. And I'm sure many of you will have come across her either in the World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders, as an Asia Society Asia 21 Young Leader or as a CNN Principal Voice. Melanie, it's really great to have you on Development Drums. Hello Owen, nice to be on it. Welcome to both of you. Now, this edition of Development Drums was inspired by a meeting in the British House of Commons. Alex and I were both involved in briefing a committee of members of Parliament on the development agenda. Alex opened the meeting with a masterful overview of the global challenges to development, which set the agenda for that meeting, and which I thought would be worth exploring in more detail here on Development Drums. The full transcript of Alex's presentation is online, and I'll put a link in the show notes on the Development Drums website, which is developmentdrums.org. And I'll also be asking questions that have been put to us by listeners, which they've raised through the Development Drums Facebook group and on Twitter. Alex, we're going to go through each of the 10 points of your uh, presentation in detail, but let's start off with give, by you giving us an overview of the topics that we're going to cover. Sure. Well, as you say, Owen, there were 10 things picked up on in the presentation, uh, and they were these. The First is about the bottom billion. Um, this is picking up on the new research from the Institute for Development Studies by Andy Sumner and others, suggesting that the majority of poor people are now actually in middle rather than low income countries. The second point was about the next billion, the uh, next billion people to arrive on Earth uh, between now and 2025 and what that will mean for uh, social change, economics and so on. The third point was about the financial crisis and the effect that that has had on uh, low income and emerging economies. The fourth point was about the next oil price spike, um, what sort of uh, outlook we have on oil prices looking ahead and what that means for development. Fifth was the question of feeding the nine billion, the prospect for how we're going to feed a, a rising global population in the light of um, a difficult, I think, supply and demand outlook on food. Sixth is climate change, very much related, of course, to, to food issues, where I picked up not only on the impacts of climate change, but also on what a potential global solution might mean for development. The seventh point was all about the trade agenda, not just the Doha round, but also the issue of security of supply in the trade context that was such an acute issue during the food and fuel spike in 2008. Uh, and then eighth was the changing face of conflict, um, where I was looking particularly at the growth of sub-national and organized crime-based conflict. And then the last two were more about what we do about all of this. The, the ninth was about the global governance deficit, uh, which I think hampers our ability to react to a lot of these challenges. And then the 10th point was really just coming back to what all this means for how the UK does development and what some of the concrete recommendations might be. 
Fantastic. So we're going to come at the end of the podcast to the big picture uh, and whether this all, what this all means for development. But let's, if we can, get stuck into the detail of the issues you raise one by one. And the first of your 10 topics is the changing distribution of world poverty. Now, we did a whole episode of Development Drums about this with Andy Sumner and Claire Malamed. So regular listeners will be familiar with this issue. Melanie, can you start us off on this? Now, Paul Collier argued in his influential book, The Bottom Billion, that we should focus on about 54 countries which seem to be stuck in poverty traps. But then Andy Sumner's paper on the new bottom billion shows that three quarters of the world's 1.3 billion people who live on less than $1.25 a day, that is the 1.3 billion poorest people in the world, three quarters of those live in middle income countries like India, China, Pakistan, Nigeria. So, Melanie, what do you think this means for the way that rich countries conduct development policy? And what's the right role for them in the way they relate to these kinds of emerging economies? Well, I think what um, Andy Sumner's work has really done is it's put the spotlight on issues around governance, frankly. Because, um, you know, in his work, he's noted if you're just looking at sheer numbers of people, the sheer volume of poor people, um, then clearly countries like India, India is home to the vast majority of poor people, the majority of people who are undernourished, um, you know, and, and in terms of very depressing statistics. Um, but of course, if one's looking at the, you know, country's ability to address poverty needs, then I think one has to look at what the governance capacity is. Um, that's one issue. And the second issue is looking at the political appetite in these emerging economies, in these middle income nations, um, you know, like China and India and Brazil and South Africa, to actually accept traditional uh, development assistance. Um, so one can, I think, on the one hand, make a very persuasive, compassionate argument that um, it might be better for publics in uh, developed countries to actually um, invest in um, in less developed nations where there is arguably um, a greater challenge in terms of governance systems, but greater need in terms of uh, the needs for basic needs of people. Um, as opposed to investing in countries like India, China, the emerging nations, which already have um, a pretty decent infrastructure in terms of governance, in terms of um, providing provisions for basic needs to be met. Um, you know, one, one can obviously point to the different experiences of China and India in meeting the needs of their poorest, um, but both have been good to um, very good. Um, you know, in, in in both cases. So let me just stop having, you know, made those points for now. A couple of listeners have um, focused on this question of how we tackle inequality. And um, Brendan Rigby, for example, uh, points out that um, the only known known in development is that investing in girls works. So investing in, in women. And um, it, the... He points out that tackling inequality seems to be the key issue in the long term. Alex, is there anything that you think that I mean, what do you think the role the proper role is of the rich nations in um, supporting groups um, that are marginalized or disadvantaged in emerging countries? 
Well, I think a useful starting point here is the the three-point task list that Andy Sumner set out in a post on inequality that he did on Global Dashboard last week. And he flags up governments and donors alike targeting money to disadvantaged groups. Second, public services being free at the point of use for the poorest people. And third, a much more systematic approach to social protection. One of the statistics I think is interesting on social protection is the fact that only about 20% of the world's people have access to social protection of any kind. But I think in the background, Andy's points and the wider discussion we're having illustrate the point that this isn't just about resource transfer. I think it's ultimately about a much more political approach to development, picking up on uh, Malini's point a moment ago about governance. Um, donors, I think, can only really make a difference at the margins here. Um, and their currency is influence, as I say, more than money in these situations. Um, they can't reverse the trend of what's happening uh, in a country. But I think if they work with existing drivers of change that are in place, they can have a progressive influence. Uh, Melanie, I think a number of us would be um, nervous about the idea of industrialised countries becoming too engaged in the governance agenda in countries like India and China. And when you look at what's happening today in Egypt, um, it's hard to escape the feeling that our, um, uh, to the extent that industrialised countries have been involved in the way other countries are governed, it's been on the whole rather a negative influence. How comfortable are you with the idea that the governance, say in India, is something that's legitimately the business of Britain or America? Well, let me separate out... Um uh, two things. I mean, the first is governance in terms of quality of public administration. And the seventh, second is governance um, in the context of political interference. I'm talking about the first, not the second. And I think that, um, you know, if, we, if one looks at the engagement of um, publics in the UK in countries like India, then it's quite clear that they've been on, on the development agenda. It's clear that the engagement has been at multiple levels. So at one level, it is through state-to-state -state aid transfer, through traditional development cooperation. Um, at another level, it's through the support of um, uh, non-governmental organizations, community-based organizations, very often through solidarity networks. And those arguably have been extremely, um, extremely positive in building the people-to-people -people alliances and also allowing people to address uh, more challenging agendas around communities who have been disprivileged or marginalized. You know, one can think, for example, of the ongoing support that there is for Dalit solidarity, um, uh, you know, networks in India from the UK and from across Europe. Um, if one looks at the state-to-state -state route, however, then there have been some very good examples of support for public administration. Um, so, for example, you know, I was at the IDS many, many uh, years ago. The IDS was one of the early pioneers in working with the Indian um, Administrative Service in putting gender on the agenda of, develop of uh, um, development professionals and uh, Indian Administrative uh, Service um, officials. Um, and that has led over the years to the increasing mainstreaming of gender um, within India's public policy community. So those are very practical ways in which, you know, British public has actually supported the development of greater capacity for governance in India, as well as strengthened and empowered more marginalized communities. So one can do both, but one needs to recognize that these are two quite distinct routes to supporting different different ends of society, so to speak. Great, thanks. Now, let's move on to the second challenge 
um, uh, in Alex's list, which is demographic change. And Alex, you say that between now and 2025, the world population will increase to about 8 billion um, and that uh, all the extra people essentially will be uh, African and Asian and will live in cities. Now, I'm an optimist at heart, so this seems to me a good thing. It means developing countries will have a growing population of young people. It means a declining dependency ratio and rising incomes. But, Alex, you also highlight that this could be a demographic disaster if we have a world full of poorly skilled people in countries that can't provide them with economic opportunities. So where do you come out on this? Is this good news for developing countries or bad news, Alex? I think it's impossible to generalise. It depends on the country. Um, my colleague David Stephen, who's the other editor of Global Dashboard, points out that these sorts of demographic conditions that you've just been describing, Owen, can be the springboard for really astonishing leaps in development. He gives the example of South Korea, where incomes triple per capita over a couple of decades in these uh, very favourable conditions where lots of people are entering the workforce. But I think it depends very much on whether the conditions are there uh, for that, uh, that entrance um, of lots of people into the workforce, whether the jobs are there, whether the education has been there to create the skills necessary and so on. Um, and the U.S. National Intelligence Council has done some interesting work on this. And they say that some of the countries uh, really poised to take advantage of this demographic dividend, the places like Turkey, uh, Iran, Vietnam and Indonesia, just to give four examples. But they also fret that in other countries, for example, Afghanistan, Nigeria or Pakistan, uh, the conditions aren't there for that development dividend to come out of these demographic conditions. And of course, looking at the turbulence we see in the Middle East and North Africa at the moment, there's obviously a tremendously important demographic aspect to all of that too. It seems that education is the key to this. Um, Paul Wigan on Twitter uh, has asked you both for your thoughts on how we can make sure the quality of education can be improved. Um, because that seems to be at the heart of making sure that the demographic dividend uh, is is indeed a dividend and not a disaster. And, and your uh, your career example seems to back that up. Is it is that right? Is this is this does this come down to education and skills and there and thereby jobs um, in terms of, of differentiating between what what's a dividend and what's a disaster? I think it is partly about education, but I think it's also about the quality of governance um, and whether people perceive their governance systems to be accountable, uh, responsive, to offer opportunities for participation and so on. I think that's equally important. Um, yes, I think, I mean, I'll give you an example of um, from, from India. Um, if one looks at the different development um, experience of, generally speaking, North and South India, you see that the southern states have done considerably better in terms of the very basic um, indices around um, uh, educational achievement, around health, um, around family welfare, um, nutrition, etc. And, you know, there's, um, there's a, a good body of evidence now to suggest that one of the reasons why the southern states have done so much better since independence than the northern states has been because of a much earlier investment in education, especially in the education of girls. And um, and the other point that's made also is if you look at, we were speaking earlier about marginalized communities, if you look at the experience of Dalit 
in different parts of India. You find that actually it's in the south of India where you have Dalits who are the most economically advanced now. You have many leading Dalit entrepreneurs, um, people who are running their businesses, who are contributing to the emergence of the southern state economy as effectively the powerhouse of the Indian um, IT surge in particular. So education has played a particularly important role and in specific, um, the educational focus on girls has really been a driver for the change that one sees in the south of India, which which goes to support the point that your listener has made, the importance of education. Um, the challenge, of course, comes partly with the degree of political will which is given um, to this instrumentality. Um, in India, it's only been in the last year that we've actually adopted at a national level a Right to Education Act. Um, and so, you know, one will have to see how that's played out in uh, in some of the northern states and whether they're actually able to take advantage of the demographic dividend that we have in India. They're having a very large population of young people by ensuring that the educational um, attainment, um, you know, can be improved in the near future. So this sounds like potentially good news, a democratic dividend, provided that the governance and the investment in education and the and uh, actually producing results in education can be uh, can be delivered. Let let's move on to the third topic in your list, Alex, which is the financial crisis, and it was one of your rare moments of optimism because you pointed out that. Um, of the countries who grew in 2009, the, the worst year of the financial crisis, three quarters um, of low income countries uh, actually grew rather than saw their economy decline. Um, does that suggest, Melanie, that the experience uh, of, the, of the low income countries uh, suggests that the orthodox economic prescriptions of the last 20 years, which the IMF and the World Bank have been advocating might have been misguided. The fact that the developing countries uh, grew at a time when the, um, uh, the industrialized countries were facing a financial crisis, uh, does that suggest that um, the kinds of approach that developing countries often take, less liberalized economies, for example, less liberalized banking sectors, um, uh, turns out to have been a rather successful economic strategy? And what, what do you think the lessons are for them for the future? Well, I think, firstly, it'd be very hard to generalize um, for the entire grouping of, you know, developing countries, because you're talking of a highly, highly differentiated group of more than 100, you know, um, countries. Um, what I would peel out, however, would be that there are a number of the higher performing economies, um, largely the middle income countries, which have done pretty well in the last couple of years, haven't been as buffeted by the global financial crisis, um, have made a success of macroeconomic management, um, partly to do with the fact that they had greater capital controls and they were less exposed to the kind of banking practices that we've seen in the OECD countries. Um, so that's an essential point. And I think, you know, my own country in India, we see that. We see um, the Indians, uh, you know, feeling very smug about the fact that they've been able to ride out the financial crisis and growth is continuing to keep pace. Um, and importantly, that the financial sector, uh, financial services sector in India, it seems to be extremely robust and the basic fundamentals of the economy continue to be quite robust. Now, Matt Morris, who was um, the DFID uh, economics uh, guy in uh, Delhi, 
um, points out that we might not we might be overstating the extent to which developing countries have ridden out the financial crisis because although although they grew, their growth rate actually slowed compared to to the trend growth rate that they had been experiencing before that. And for example, in India, the growth rate slowed by, he says, three percentage points, which Matt reckons on the back of an envelope means that there are somewhere between six and nine million more people in poverty. So uh, are we perhaps being too optimistic in saying, well, actually, a number of the developing countries did rather well, because although they grew, they didn't actually grow as fast as they had been growing or should have been growing. Alex, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think Matt's point is fair enough. I mean, it comes with all the usual methodological caveats about counterfactuals. But I can see that that may well have been the case. But I still think the underlying story uh, is the extent to which the financial crisis perhaps accelerated the power shift that was already happening uh, from OECD to emerging economies um, and accelerated that shift, something that Martin Wolf picked up on in the Financial Times recently. And I think a really interesting illustration of that, if you want a, a quantified illustration, is the price of insuring against government default, credit default swaps, in other words, because today uh, insuring against the risk of a default by China costs the same in CDS markets as insuring against the risk of a default by the UK, whereas uh, and insuring Italian debt, to give another example, is now more expensive than doing so for countries including Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Russia and Indonesia. So I think that, you know, that it's not a new observation to, to remark on the power shift towards emerging economies, but I think the financial crisis appears to have potentially accelerated that. And what's your what's your reaction to Melanie's point that some of the practices in some developing countries, like, for example, stronger capital controls or a less deregulated banking system, may have turned out to be uh, a good news in insulating countries from shocks. Does that does that make you wonder about the orthodox economic prescription? Yes, I think so. Um, and I think that that's been widely remarked upon. There was a very good comment piece by um, Kishore Mabubani um, a couple of weeks ago talking about how Asian policymakers and opinion formers were, were reconsidering the advice they'd been given by the IMF and, you know, looking for a bit of humble pie, I think, from some of the... Um, voices that have been most aggressive in pushing that agenda. The interesting question for me is whether this extends beyond the financial liberalization aspect to other forms of globalization. Um, I was very interested to see research um, by Edward Carr and others um, last week, which suggested that in terms of um, resilience to food price volatility, uh, it seems actually to be richer consumers in low-income countries who are more exposed to food price volatility because they live in cities and are more reliant on global markets, whereas poor people in low-income countries uh, often, according to his research, seem to have more resilience to food price volatility because they're in rural areas less dependent on those global markets and can therefore affect what he calls temporary deglobalization uh, in times of volatility. So I think that flexibility in how much you choose to expose yourself to globalization, whether uh, as a community or a country or whatever, is an interesting aspect to all of this. I think I'd also like to just um, point out that, you know, one's not suggesting that um, some or many developing countries were immune to the effects of the global financial crisis um, because none of them were immune, but many felt weren't as affected by the slowdown as OECD countries were. I think one also has to differentiate between the middle-income countries, those can, that can effectively take better care of themselves, um, as opposed to 
um, more fragile, um, uh, less developed countries, which would have been very badly affected and perhaps deserve to get a little bit more attention in terms of the impact on their peoples and their economies than they're presently getting because of the kind of overemphasis there seems to me um, on, on the mix on the middle income countries. You know, I think that's a very good point. And it, it uh, is important again on the fourth topic, which we'll move to now, which is the impact of oil prices. Um, where Alex, you were back in um, uh, doomsayer mode um, because you, as you pointed out, a 2007 study found that 13 African countries, including Ethiopia, my current home, um, spent more money on oil imports than they received in aid and debt relief put together. So rising oil prices for the for the poorest oil importing countries is a hugely big deal. Um, so, Alex, what's the what's the prognosis for oil prices, and what does that mean, particularly for these poorest developing countries for whom the a rising oil bill is uh, can be pretty bad news? Right. Well, I think the first half of the outlook is uh, of strongly rising demand. Um, almost exclusively now, uh, additional demand for oil will come from non-OECD economies, um, according to recent world energy outlooks from the International Energy Agency. I think where that becomes um, problematic, uh, other than, of course, the climate change dimensions, which we'll come on to, is partly because there's this problem of underinvestment in new oil exploration and production. The International Energy Agency has been warning quite consistently for a few years now that the amounts being invested are way too low to meet this projected demand. And so they've been warning about the possibility of a new oil supply crunch as soon as the global economy recovers. And, um, you know, with prices having been flirting with the $100 mark recently for oil, that appears to be uh, perhaps being borne out. In the background, of course, is this larger question, still very contentious, of when global oil production will peak um, and there's no consensus on that as yet, although there's a, a WikiLeaked cable which has uh, made its way into The Guardian this morning, uh, which provides some interesting new background on that, suggesting that uh, some in Saudi Arabia at least think that oil production could peak as soon as 2012. But as I say, that remains contentious. What this means for the outlook on oil prices, I think, is a long-term inflationary trend, but one that's likely to be punctured by a lot of volatility because, of course, oil is in so many ways the lifeblood of the global economy that when prices get too high, uh, you would expect it to start choking off uh, economic activity and demand. So you get these wild gyrations rather than just steady inflation. And I think some analysts argue that that's partly what we just saw, uh, that oil hit $147 a barrel in July 2008, and then actually contributed, along with the financial crisis, to the global slowdown. Prices plummet to 40. Uh, demand starts to pick up again as the emerging economies recover, and we enter another iteration of the cycle. So it's too soon to say whether that's what we're looking at, but um, it's absolutely a scenario that seems consistent with the long-term outlook I've just described. Melanie, this seems like um, rather an important issue for um, developing countries and for the poor in middle-income countries, right? Yes, absolutely. Let, let me just come in on that point. And the first thing is to differentiate between countries which are uh, developing countries, which are um, oil importers, as opposed to countries which are oil exporters. So if, for example, you are an Angola or a Nigeria, you know, respectively, the number one and the number two major oil exporters from Africa, then you'll be seeing this whole issue of, of price rises in a quite different light, as opposed to if you are, you know, a Tuvalu, um, you know, or, um, or a Togo, where you're effectively oil importers and extremely vulnerable to the volatility, volatility in the oil markets. Um, 
the, the other thing really just to add on to what um, Alex has already noted about the general progresses for the, or the, um, the, uh, the oil sector in the, in the coming years is just to um, emphasize, uh, you know, there has been continuing work by organizations like Global Witness, which have actually said that we continue to get disinformation um, uh, coming out of uh, some of the, the most authoritative bodies, including the, the International Energy Agency, when it comes to um, the uh, oil discovery, the rate of oil, res uh, the uh, um, amount of oil reserves that we have, um, because there are some very important vested interests in particular, the um, the oil exporting uh, economies, which are preventing some key information coming into uh, the public domain, which perhaps would hasten um, uh, government efforts to transition out of oil into more renewable forms of energy in the to secure our mid to longer term energy security. And um, presumably, if we did manage to accelerate the move out of oil into renewables, that could be good news for some of the poorest countries, be, uh, the, not the countries that are oil exporters, as you say, like Angola and Nigeria, but a country like Ethiopia, which has ambitions to become a major energy exporter from hydro and perhaps solar energy in the future. Um, that kind of, if, if we could accelerate a move from oil, that could be quite good news for the resource-rich poorest countries. Is that right? Well, one would certainly hope so, and one would hope that countries, you know, like Ethiopia, um, certainly, you know, like China, which is already in its 12th five-year plan, um, going to be significantly investing in uh, clean energy and uh, clean technology, that there is more of a, um, uh, a case made by these important nations for the transition into renewables. I'm interested that you link this to a transparency agenda, that, that if we had more information about, for example, oil reserves, that that might accelerate the transition. Alex, does that, uh, does that uh, resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cheating is completely endemic within OPEC. Everybody lies about the size of their reserves because then that directly feeds through to their production quotas. And that's one of the things that's interesting in this cable um, from the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh that I just referred to, that... Uh, the person they were speaking to, who was a former head of exploration at Aramco, the oil monopoly there, argues that Saudi Arabia has un uh, overstated sorry, its reserves by about 40%. So really, really important for global markets if that's true. And as you say, it's, uh, it's a transparency issue first and foremost. Let, let's turn now to food, which actually has quite a close relationship with oil prices. Um, and uh, in particular, the food price spike in 2008. And Alex, you argue that... Um, while there are short-term causes of that particular spike, bad weather, high oil prices, um, that in the long run, food prices will be driven up by scarcity and that one of the key development challenges is going to be to feed 9 billion people, which is what we expect the world population to peak at. Now, as you know, I'm far from convinced that um, food production is an important driver of hunger and food insecurity. I think it relates to poverty rather than production. But Alex, tell us what you think is going to happen both on the demand side for food and on the supply side of food production. Well, first, Owen, let me just agree with you that this is absolutely not just about production. The access aspect is just as important. And one of my regrets about the way policymakers have dealt with this issue internationally over the last couple of years 
is that they've all been very keen to talk about the need to produce 50% more food by 2030. Uh, and we've heard rather less about the fact that, for example, we produce enough food today to feed everybody, but there's 925 million people who are undernourished. So as you say, it's absolutely about access as much as the quantum of food that's produced. But I think that nevertheless, it does matter that we have a long-term outlook of um, a tighter supply-demand balance. On the demand side, we have, as you referred to, rising population, but also a larger and more affluent global middle class shifting to Western diets, eating more meat, dairy products, and so on. Um, lots more demand coming from biofuels as well. Um, 40% of the U.S. corn crop this year will go to car engines uh, rather than people's stomachs. And then on the supply side, we have, as, as you referred to, this range of scarcity issues. So increasing competition for land between biofuels, um, cities, carbon sequestration, meat, um, and so on. There's uh, increasing water scarcity in many parts of the world, something that will be amplified by climate change, which, of course, is a big uh, uh, impact on food uh, in its own right. And then, as you mentioned, the energy outlook as well, because high oil prices tend to mean high food prices, partly because fertilizer is made from fossil fuels. We use a lot of energy on farms in transporting food around the world and processing it. And now, of course, biofuels has closed the loop so that we can actually turn food into fuel. So I think all of this uh, does create a very challenging outlook uh, in terms of both producing enough food and on the access side. But I think the key point is there's nothing deterministic in, that, in all of this. I'm absolutely not a Malthusian, um, but I do think we, we face some difficult decisions. And so far, we haven't seen anything like the political will needed to navigate this successfully. Melanie, do you think this is a credible scenario? And if so, what? should we do about it and who who is the who that should be doing something about it i mean my instinct is that markets will take care of this that rising food prices uh, will attract more investment in production and and there'll be more there'll be more food to go around as a result what's what's your take on this well, I think the point um, that Alex has already made is very well taken, which is that the problem right now is not one of supply, it really is of uh, distribution. Um, and it's about how we handle that food. So um, a third of all the food which is currently produced, for example, today is wasted. Um, you know, we have a world food system which is failing us. We have a billion people who are undernourished, as Alex mentioned, but we also have a billion people who are overweight. So there are many things that we need to do to make sure that we're actually getting um, the whole food system right, um, which is meeting nutrition needs, which is, um, you know, um, meeting nutrition needs fundamentally as, as, as the first principle, really, of this. Like what? I mean, you say we need to do something about the, the, the system is fundamental. And I agree with you. And, and as you say, we're producing enough food now and there, is, there are um, nearly a billion people hungry. So what is it that we need to do to, to fix there that? Are there are many, many kinds of interventions which would be needed. So, for example, if you look at the loss of food in distribution channels, I was just recently speaking to an engineer about this. And my point was, look, this is a problem. And his comeback was, OK, if it's a problem, there's a solution. So there are people out there, you know, the engineers, for example, who see this as a problem in search of a solution and, um, and, and would suggest, well, if you actually if, if the problem is that you simply you don't have the uh, uh, the refrigeration stores, you're, you don't have um, uh, the proper distribution networks, then we can we can provide a solution for this. Um, so this is a 
a real opportunity for um, for people who are looking at innovative solutions to addressing distribution challenges, the logistical challenges to get in there and have a debate with policymakers and formulate those solutions. Um, if one's looking at increasing productivity, which has come up which has come up as uh, as one of the key recommendations, um, given the fact that for much of the last decade to two decades, there has been a significant underinvestment in agricultural productivity. We are now beginning to see um, the G8 taken this, this up. It's now the FAO is really pushing this as a major area of um, government as well as private sector investments. One can look at countries like Vietnam, for example, where actually there are some very positive examples of how Vietnam as a country which was um, gripped by famine um, just a few decades ago um, has actually emerged as the second largest producer of rice after uh, Thailand. And one of the reasons it's managed to do that has been a massive government uh, um, investment program into agricultural productivity, especially on rice, and greater private sector and public sector investment in farmer skills training, et cetera, agricultural extension services, which have been um, uh, resurrected. So many things that can be done. Um, we also need to be attentive to the fact that in order to avoid the kind of crises that we had in 2008, where we had um, the massive worldwide uh, food price rise, that policymakers need to be attentive to the fact that we have to make sure that we actually have buffer reserves so we don't have uh, you know, countries which are at risk of starvation. The final point I'd like to make on this is referring to something quite different, which is the whole the emerging practice now of countries which are securing arable lands in other countries to grow their food. So you see China, and this is something you'll be familiar with in Ethiopia, Owen, where you have Chinese companies, Indian companies, where the unkind term is land grabbing, uh, to grow agricultural produce. Um, for consumption back home or for exports. And this is a trend which I think which requires a great deal more scrutiny as to whether this is actually in the, uh, in the, in the benefits, uh, public interest benefits of the poorest of the world. I think we're going to need a, a separate episode on food prices and food production because these, these are hugely important issues. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, in Addis Ababa, and my guests today are Alex Evans from the NYU Centre for International Cooperation and Melanie Mara from the Centre for Social Markets. You can find Alex's writing at globaldashboard.org, and you can find out all about the Centre for Social Markets at csmworld.org. If you like Development Drums, there's a good chance that you'll also be interested in the Global Prosperity Wonkcast a shorter, snappier podcast produced by my friends and colleagues at the Centre for Global Development. And you may be interested in The Guardian's new monthly development podcast, which you can find on the Guardian Development website. And I'll put links to both of those on the Development Drums website, which is at developmentdrums.org. And I'll put it on the Development Drums page on Facebook, including links to uh, Alex and Melanie's organisations. Today we're talking about the 10 challenges for development, which Alex Evans put in front of a committee of British MPs. We've talked about changing distribution of poverty. We've talked about demographic change, the financial crisis, the oil price and food prices. So we're halfway through the list. Alex, your sixth issue is one which I think I probably would have put first as the most pressing development challenge of our time, and that's climate change. 
You say that we're on course for a global temperature increase of at least three degrees Celsius. Um, Melanie, tell us what climate change of this kind of temperature range is going to mean for development. Well, the, the three degrees that Alex is mentioning is a global average temperature rise. And actually, the UK is already preparing for a four degree world. And remember, these are averages. So if you are, um, you know, uh, depending on where you are on the globe, if you're at a higher altitude, then the temperature rise is likely to be higher in some parts of Africa. Um, in the Horn of Africa, for example, the estimate is that the temperature rise could be between four to six degrees by the end of the century. Um, if you imagine that station has um, never, uh, you know, uh, had to contend with the degrees of climate uh, of temperature rise that we're talking about right now, um, then, you know, it will give an indication of the degree of challenge that we have. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, keeping um, quite basic things going in terms of our uh, food security. We've just been talking about um, agricultural productivity and climate change is severely impacting agricultural productivity. We're seeing declining productivity in terms of wheat um, and maize in many parts of the world. Um, so the climate impacts in terms of food security, water security are likely to be quite severe. Um, there will be some populations which will be more at risk than other populations. And the whole issue around climate vulnerability and adaptation is now climbing up the policy agenda, as rightly it should. But certainly, I mean, this is something that um, deserves all the attention that it's beginning to get finally. Alex, this is, this is a killer blow, isn't it? Well, yes, I think this is very serious for development, but it also opens up the opportunity of a, of a renewed development agenda as we head towards 2015 and thinking about what comes beyond the deadline uh, for the Millennium Development Goals. For me, this is all about resilience. And I think that when we think about adapting to climate change in developing countries, some of the most exciting and innovative areas of development practice right now are all about risk reduction and resilience. You think of areas like peace building, climate adaptation itself, uh, social protection, disaster risk reduction, livelihoods approaches, uh, natural resource governance. I think one of the interesting things for me is that there's tremendous overlap and scope for synergies between these areas of development practice that we haven't really explored yet. And I'd also make the observation that none of these uh, elements of development practice were really flagged up in the MDGs that much. They appear to some extent in the Millennium Declaration, but certainly not in the wording of the goals themselves. So I think as we come up to this point of renewal for the development narrative and the development agenda, resilience can really be a key plank in that. But it seems to me that we, I mean, I agree with you that things like, you know, social protection schemes to uh, put a safety net under the, uh, under the poorest make perfect sense and are going to be an important part of the development agenda. But the kinds of, of changes, for example, in agricultural production that Melanie was talking about are going to require more than, um, you know, disaster risk reduction. They're going to require a fundamental, you know, we, uh, a country like Niger, for example, it's hard to see how it's going to support even half its current population if the kind of temperature rises that we're talking about come true. And those people are going to have to move somewhere, aren't they? I mean, isn't this, isn't this potentially absolutely catastrophic? Well, of course, potentially it is, although there is a real dearth of hard data on this. I mean, oftentimes you hear these, um, you know, figures of around 200 million climate refugees by 2050. And there's really not that much evidence to support those kinds of figures. They're very much plucked from the air. I think that we do know quite a lot about how to do adaptation, about how to do the sort of 21st century green revolution that Malini was just talking about. And some of the most exciting examples of that are from the Sahel, where 
there have been tremendously successful environmental restoration projects um, in the last few years that have restored ecosystems, provided livelihood, um, created the resilience I was just talking about. Um, I think at the same time, of course, you're right that, you know, there's only so far that you can adapt. So this brings us back to the central importance of a, a comprehensive global deal on climate change, which unfortunately doesn't seem close at hand following uh, Copenhagen, Cancun and so forth. In your presentation to MPs, Alex, you tossed in rather casually the idea that climate finance could be a major new source of finance for developing countries. And yeah, as we've, uh, as you put it, and I, uh, this is something on which I strongly agree with you, if developing countries had emissions ceilings and the global allocations of emissions rights was equally distributed, then many developing countries would be able to sell to the rest of the world their surplus right to emit and that would be, a, as it were, a trade flow, a willing seller, willing buyer um, transaction, which would be a big flow of funds to the developing world. Um, so why doesn't that happen? That seems both the most efficient way of tackling climate change and limiting emissions and potentially a, a hugely valuable source of income for development. Well, I think it could be extremely valuable. It would depend on the carbon price, of course. But just one illustration is that back in 2008, uh, global aid flows were worth $120 billion, according to the OECD. And emissions trading in the same year was worth $64 billion, so more than half, according to the World Bank. And that's emissions trading in its infancy and critically without developing countries having any of the assets that have been um, created and allocated. It's only developed countries that have them. And this really cuts to the core of the issue that I think uh, developing countries have tended to resist um, the idea that they should have um, targets in international climate policy because those targets are just seen as a burden. But of course, they're also assets. They're also entitlements. They're things that you can trade that are worth money. And it all comes down, therefore, as you said, Owen, to the uh, criteria, to the formula that you use to allocate those entitlements. And if we did so on an equitable basis, I mean, I, I've long argued that convergence to equal per capita entitlements by some agreed date uh, seems the most uh, fair and um, simple way to do that. But there are other formula that people have uh, proposed as well. But if you did that, then absolutely you'd be creating this finance for development flow. What I would love to see happen is low-income countries breaking ranks from G77 solidarity in the context of climate talks and coming out and saying, A, we need a solution, but B, we want our property rights to the atmosphere because we see the development opportunity here. That would then put the emerging economies much more on the spot um, and I think would be a fundamental game changer in the dynamics of the climate debate. Uh, it seems to me that if they don't do that, then we're in the the kind of um, enclosure of the commons in which the rich uh, and the middle classes stake their claim to the world's assets and the poor do without perhaps for generations. That Only if we allocate these property rights uh, on an equal per capita basis will the poor get their fair share. Melanie, do, does that seem to you to be a, a plausible agenda for climate change? And do you think that developing countries could uh, could benefit in the long run from a from a global deal? Yes, I mean, I think just picking up on the last point that Alex made, you know, his call for, um, you know, for a breaking of ranks within the G77, I think that's clearly been happening over the course of the last year and a half. It's accelerated with the emergence of new groupings like the Cartagena Group, which bring together, you know, um, countries, countries from north, south, east and west, you know, from the Maldives, Costa Rica to the UK, you know, France, Germany, etc. Um, and the, the purpose of these new of this particular new grouping is clearly to bring 
some fresh um, energy, some um, new thinking, a more solutions-oriented approach to the whole issue of um, managing carbon emissions and preparing for adaptation. Um, I think also just to give the, the issue the due importance and recognize actually the gravity of climate change for development for many countries, most countries that we're speaking of in the world are unfit right now to adapt to a climate changed world. Um, if you're just talking of the countries which are banded together under AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, I mean, these are countries like Tuvalu, Kiribati, um, uh, the Maldives, uh, Vanuatu, which themselves are undertaking um, plans for re relocating their populations because they're faced with saltwater intrusion into their countries right now, which are making um, you know uh, their islands uninhabitable. So this isn't a far off distant prospect. I mean, climate change is calling severe developmental setbacks and posing survival um, issues for, for many countries, which is why um, you know, the majority of countries um, in the UN are calling for a reduction of global average emissions to 1.5 degrees, not to uh, 2 degrees of warming, but 1.5 degrees of warming. So um, the, the clear issues for us are how to climate-proof development, how to build greater literacy about the multidimensional impacts of climate change and ensure in particular that infrastructure which is being built right now is climate-proof so we don't have the kind of disasters that we've seen in Pakistan with up to 20 million people displaced as a result of one, you know, uh, once-in-a-lifetime flooding incident. The seventh challenge on your list, Alex, was trade, where you described the multilateral Doha round as being now in a kind of zombie state, walking dead. Um, and we're seeing some worrying moves towards various kinds of protectionism, like, for example, the export restrictions on food that we saw during the food price spike, which, of course, is a big danger for some of the world's poorest consumers. Melanie, do you think we can advance the multilateral trade agenda now, or are we stuck with uh, trade policy moving backwards? I'm not sure whether it's possible to advance at a multilateral level, given how countries have really dug in their heels. There's clearly a lot more interest um, being met uh, in investment in uh, uh, trade deals which are taking place at the regional level. So you see across the world now free trade agreements which are being entered into by countries. Um, and perhaps, I mean, in the interim, just as we have this um, hiatus on the multilateral agenda in terms of climate, we're going to see foot dragging and not really an appetite for a global trade round, um, uh, uh, you know, at, at the international level, but more action at the local and the regional level. Alex, are you, uh, do you think these um, local and regional trade deals can move us uh, forward as much as we need? Well, maybe. Um, but the thing that I'm especially preoccupied with is issues of security of supply. Um, it's interesting that the Doha round is very much about market access. The World Trade Organization itself is very much built to deal with the disputes that you get that are about market access. And I think something is shifting in the trade agenda that instead of the long term uh, buyer's market that we were in for 20 years on commodities, we now seem to be in a seller's market. And so you get these disputes about security of supply. And as you alluded to, um, in introducing this um, part, uh, Owen, back in 2008, we had more than 30 countries with food export restrictions in place. The trade system went into a kind of uh, meltdown with 
coming fairly close to a kind of generalized loss of confidence um, on the part of import dependent countries in the capacity of open markets to meet their needs. So what I'm especially interested in is how we put greater resilience in the international system uh, to deal with and prevent these sorts of um, volatility and these sort of slides into resource nationalism and zero-sum competition. And I think that uh, Malini's already referred to one thing we can do, which is food reserves. But I think a concrete uh, measure that we could potentially get agreement on this year is a code of conduct in the G20 uh, that would commit G20 members not to using export bans. This is very much on the French agenda for the G20. President Sarkozy has put um, President Medvedev in charge of the working group on this, which initially I thought was a bad joke, given that the Russians are the one country in the G20 to have implemented export restrictions on food in the last year. But then the more you think about it, the more perhaps it makes sense. But if they could get that agreement, a political commitment from G20 members and then ultimately from uh, Ken's group, agricultural exporters, to not to impose export bans, I think that would put us on a much sounder footing uh, uh, as we move forward. Uh, and we'll come in a second to the global governance issues that all these uh, questions raise. Um, before we do, let's look at the eighth um, and in a, uh, kind of final challenge on your list, which is the changing face of conflict, where, Alex, you highlighted two issues, the, the growth of subnational, low-intensity forms of violence, particularly in rural areas, because, partly because of disputes about natural resources like land and water, and you uh, highlighted the risk of feral cities, of cities in which law and order has broken down. What, what do you see as the implication of all this for development, Alex? Well, I think it implies um, challenges because our toolkit is built for different conflicts. The sorts of um, things that the international system has become good at in the last couple of decades are civil wars. And consequently, we've uh, become much better at uh, peacekeeping missions. We now have more UN peacekeepers deployed around the world than ever before. There are signs of overstretch on that, but we basically know the toolkit that we're dealing with. But when you're looking at conflicts like the Naxalite insurgency in India or the sort of violence that we've seen in Mexico in recent years, which has killed 27,000 people uh, since 2006, I think it's much less clear what the toolkit to deal with those sorts of conflicts um, is. These aren't traditional civil wars. And I think a lot of conflict analysts are worried that whilst the number of civil wars continues to decline, the number of deaths in violent conflict may be going back up for the first time since the end of the Cold War. So uh, I think where this takes us is back to that territory of governance, uh, political economy and so forth, where it's not clear, as I say, that we have um, toolkits as the international system necessarily to be able to deal with those. Melanie, so we've got changing conflict um, and don't have the tools to cope with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what it, you know, the, uh, can these conditions really do is put an onus um, as if it was needed anymore on stability, the importance of political stability. Um, Alex referred to the insurgencies which, um, you know, taking place in India. India actually has the largest number of insurgencies of any country in the world. One wouldn't think that that was so, given by the kind of international press that a country like India gets. But part of the reason why one doesn't, you know, um, one's not talking about it constantly is because countries, you know, like India are not seen as um, as unstable polities. And, um, you know, within India, I mean, key issues uh, you know, are with regard to the quality of governance 
um, at a subnational level. So not really looking at, what, you know, how strong the national state is, but how strong are the actual um, uh, pieces of the state? You know, so the, the uh, states, the provinces at a subnational level, how resilient are they? And what can people do to actually ensure a greater degree of uh, political robustness, transparency, participation at a subnational level? Because that's the level at which most people, most citizens, can actually get stuck in um, and become active citizens. Um, and, you know, whether it's a Mexico, whether it's a large, uh, you know, country such as, you know, China or India, I think increasingly we're going to see greater political engagement at the subnational level and a willingness to, see, to see, seek to improve the quality of governance at that level. So we've talked about eight grand challenges for development. The, the changing distribution of poverty, demographic change, climate change, oil and food prices, the stalled trade round, and the changing face of conflict. And the last two points in your presentation, Alex, related to what these eight challenges mean for the institutions and organisations working on development and development policy. And let's look first at global governance and the global governance deficit, which is something that you and David Stephen at Global Dashboard have written about extensively. And uh, Matt Morris um, points out, one of the listeners points out that many of the challenges we're discussing today, free trade, financial regulation, mitigation of climate change, these are all essentially global collective action problems. And you, you gave the example earlier of um, uh, an agreement not to not to uh, put on export restrictions on food, um, and we talked about the the challenges that we're facing in the trade round. So, what's the answer? What what is it that we can do to fill the global governance deficit, which seems to seems to underpin all the problems we've been talking about today? Well, I tend to think of the global governance deficit as breaking down into four quite specific gaps uh, that have the effect of these log jams, multilateral processes like trade, like climate change, and so on. Um, the first of these gaps is bandwidth, that often the multilateral systems we have just aren't very good at generating agreement. Um, I think some of the log jams we've seen in the climate talks lately absolutely illustrate that, the fact that you have to get decisions in full plenary with 192 countries uh, on board. This is a very low bandwidth system for generating multilateral action. The second gap is about leadership, that typically political leaders uh, don't want to expend political capital on long-term global issues. Um, the rates of return politically are not very good. Uh, the third issue on, on a related point is there's a gap of political space. Uh, publics typically are not ready around the world for really radical action uh, to act on the recognition of global interdependence, whether that's on environment or other issues. But I think fourth and maybe most fundamentally, there's just a gap in terms of knowing what it is that solutions would look like to these global challenges. Um, David, Stephen and I have written about what we call an age of uncertainty, that just on a lot of these agendas, policymakers genuinely don't know what to do or what the solutions would look like. Uh, and I think that's the gap that we can do most to address in the meantime, uh, while we wait for more leadership, more political space and work slowly to increase bandwidth in the multilateral system. I think the other point it's worth making is that we have a theory of change in the multilateral system that uh, progress is made very incrementally in small steps. And I think 90% of the time that's true. And so it's right that we should expend 90% of our effort on it. But I do think that 
perhaps 90% of the opportunity exists in the remaining 10% of the time. And that's where progress isn't incremental, but happens in large steps, usually in the aftermath of some sort of a shock. I think shocks are important because they create windows of political opportunity, moments at which actors are willing to think the unthinkable. And everything in those windows of opportunity depends on who's ready to take advantage of them. I think a great example is the fact that in Lehman, uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, we had a six-week period afterwards where there was genuine willingness to think the unthinkable about global financial architecture, but there was no readiness, there was no content, no ideas sitting on the shelf ready to be dusted off, uh, agreed upon and implemented. And I think that looking ahead over the next decade, we can expect lots more shocks of all kinds, financial, climate, price spikes and so on. And having a better sense of what it is that we're going to push for when those windows of opportunity open um, is another arrow in our quiver that we can use to push for more collective action. Nalini, what's your view? Is the global governance system fit for purpose? And if not, what kind of changes uh, can you envisage? Um, Is global governance fit for purpose? I I think you'd have a hard time finding anyone who'd say yes to that. Um, I spent um, a week at the World Economic Forum in Davos a short while back, and it was interesting. One of the key themes running through the sessions was um, a recognition that it it was time for the G8 to have moved to the G20, but unfortunately, we were living in a world of a G0. And uh, I don't know how many times I heard that reference to the G0. So um, it's it's clear that on on two levels, firstly, that our political institutions are quite passe. They've been unable to keep up with the rapidity of uh, political and economic changes that one sees around the world. And secondly, there is a huge deficit of leadership, in particular from the one country, um, the G1, the US, that many people continue to expect leadership from, even though they may not like the look of it when it appears. Um, so that is a fair reflection, I think, of the state of affairs right now. Um, I think in terms of things that can ch- change, you need people to be a lot more proactive. So coming to Alex's point that, well, you know, policymakers are unsure about what to do. And the point that you had made, you know, what does one do need to do to actually um, be opportunistic and seizing um, a crisis and making something good of it? It means that you have to do some thinking in advance about preparing for a future which will look very different to um, our world of today, um, to using uh, a much more risk management-oriented approach uh, to the future, um, and importantly, um, not being uh, not shying away from surprises um, or recognizing as we're seeing, you know, as the revolution, you know, uh, unfolds itself in, uh, in in Egypt and in Tunisia, that actually um, there will be many different new agents of change, and they'll come in very unexpected guise, guises. Um, so. You know, to end on an optimistic note, I think, um, you know, we haven't mentioned the importance of new technological developments, importantly, the IT revolution, how social media is changing our world, the fact that we have a large majority of citizens in our countries who haven't been engaged in the political process, who have actually largely disengaged, who now have new means and a new incentive for engaging in political reform. And certainly that's one of the key, um, key ways forward. Um, we obviously have to do a, you know, a better job of thinking about the solution set than we have in the past. And so that's where I'd like to put more of my thinking, you know, in the time to come and certainly do a lot more reading up on the kind of stuff that, you know, people like Alex and David have been doing. 
So last but not least, that brings us neatly to the 10th item on Alex's list, which is the way, Alex, you brought this back home to the members of parliament for whom this analysis was written, which is how the UK thinks about development. What do we do? And on Twitter, Erin has asked for your reflections, not just on what the UK needs to do, but how the development industry as a whole needs to change uh, in the light of these challenges and the global governance deficit. Alex, what's, what's your advice? Well, the four concluding points that I put to the International Development Committee at the session we were both at were, first, that we need to focus on poor people, not just poor countries. Second, that DFID right now needs more staff, more than it needs more cash. Um, DFID, of course, has been losing about one in six staff over the last couple of years, which I think is an insane thing to do when the budget is going up as quickly as it is. Third, we need to focus much more on building resilience and reducing vulnerability, something we touched on uh, in a few places in the discussion. And fourth, that we have to focus at least as much on what happens internationally as on what happens in poor countries. So in the background, just to come to Erin's point, I think that I'd flag up three themes that matter for the development industry. The first is that we need to integrate development with diplomacy and also with defence. This is very much one of the key messages of the quadrennial uh, diplomacy and development review that Hillary Clinton has just led um, at the US State Department. Uh, And we need to do much more of that in the UK and around the world. The second theme, I think, is policy coherence, that it's not, of course, it's not just our aid budgets that matter for development. It's our arms sales, it's our emissions, it's the conditionalities we attach to our trade policies and so on. And so we need a much more holistic appreciation of that. And I think the third point, just to come back to something Melanie just said, is dealing with conditions of massive uncertainty uh, and therefore that we need a risk management approach that's um, based on a kind of learning approach um, that takes a long-term view on the future and acts on it um, and and recognizes that we are going to be uh, doing development in very, very volatile and turbulent conditions, but that that creates opportunities as well as risks. Melanie, we've we've used Alex's agenda with his eight important challenges and the two implications uh, for global governance and for development policy. I find all this quite gloomy and quite difficult. And I think um, uh, the discussion that Alex and I were both at, um, a number of the members of parliament found it quite difficult to grasp with this level of challenge and and pessimism. Um, And yet, at the same time, we live in an age where we're making unprecedented progress on reducing poverty. People are getting access to health and education and clean water. Well, are you as pessimistic as Alex seems to be? Or, uh, you know, you were talking about, for example, social change and technology and so on. Are there grounds for optimism here that we can set against uh, this pessimism? Well, I think, you know, there, there, there are. I mean, unfortunately, we tend to get the media offering up only the glass half empty and not the glass half full. Um, there are many, you know, there are many, many trends. If one looks at social innovation, such as, uh, the role that Facebook and Twitter are playing in terms of political reform, that's a brilliant thing. Um, if one looks at new technologies which are being developed at the level of materials so that we can actually, you know, have many more biodegradable uh, materials on offer, which are, you know, um, uh, you know, producing quite different products and services, that's positive. Um, you know, one looks at innovations in, uh, in, in government. Um, you know, there are many things that are happening. In India, for example, we have the largest number of women parliamentarians. So there are many grounds for optimism. I think we're, we're living in very uncertain but equally very exhilarating times. 
and um, and we all need to um you know to to play you know a, a, a positive role to be willing to get engaged um and to offer to offer you know energy and positive thinking um because i think it's the it's the you know it's the energy and it's not just the policy set which is important um which is why one of the key things for me about you know being in a country like india is that even though you know one is faced with you know poverty and squalor that's not the general tenor the general tenor that one you know one feels one feels a great degree of optimism confidence exuberance and that's what pushes societies forward um you know i think if i were living in the us where there's 10% almost in unemployment where there is political uncertainty where there's virtually a you know a fragmented political dialogue i wouldn't be feeling quite as optimistic um but it's my sense of optimism that makes me feel that great things are achievable um and that's a good place to end on i think in terms of where the uk is in the whole de- debate on development I think it's important to recognize obviously the changes which are taking place in our world where countries like the UK will play, will play a less significant role perhaps than they have been accustomed to playing in in the last century but it's equally important to emphasize that they need to play a very important role and speak loudly when it comes to issues around the importance of human rights and democracy and uh, political and civil freedoms because we do have an absence of uh, political voice um on that level at the intergovernmental uh on the intergovernmental stage so it's very important until we have the kind of the new leaders given that we're in a period of transition that we not um you know underemphasize the importance of a human rights undergirding to global public affairs Alex I know you are also quite I've been painting you as as the dark gloom monger but actually you're also quite optimistic <laughs> and upbeat aren't you yeah, I think that Melanie is absolutely right to stress the importance of social network technologies. That's definitely one of my reasons to be cheerful. Um I think they show Clay Shirky talks about the sort of cognitive surplus and how social network technologies can make use of people's spare time so that they can cooperate and make things happen. And I think that there's a huge appetite for that in the development context. You look at the popularity of things like kiva.org, the kind of peer-to-peer micro-lending website. I think there's a lot there for NGOs to think about. Um traditional NGOs still offer very limited opportunities for participation to their members. Sign a petition, give us some money, and that's about it. And I think that increasingly NGOs are going to need to put their members in control if they want to stay relevant. So that's that's one thing that I think is interesting. I I think secondly that the shocks we were talking about will create greater recognition of global interdependence and that will create political space although it's going to be a volatile uh, process. I think the third thing that uh matters in all of this is just narratives. I do uh worry sometimes that some of the narratives we use to talk about the kind of global solutions we need are quite dry. I mean, you think of the aid effectiveness discourse in the development context or when people want to be part of the solution on climate change and immediately we're talking about these very techy things like um insulating your loft or installing a smart meter or whatever. And I think that we need much grander narratives stories about global transition and how people fit into that process of moving into a more just and sustainable and resilient world um and i think there's an interesting question about where those narratives are going to come from i mean i think it's difficult for for example single issue 
NGOs to talk about this much bigger picture narrative. Um, I certainly don't think we get this narrative from policymakers much of the time or from the mainstream media. So I think that uh, just talking more about big picture futures um, is an important step towards that. But having those really resonant storylines, not just about the process of transition we're in, about how to shoot these rapids, but also that describe the pool at the other end of the rapids, those are really going to matter. You can find those narratives at globaldashboard.org, where you, where Alex Evans and David Stephen and, and various other people are writing. And you can find out about uh, Melanie Mera's work at the Centre for Social Markets at csmworld.org. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, in Addis Ababa. And I just want to thank Alex and uh, Melanie for a really interesting discussion. Thank you to you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks very much. Development Drums is available online at developmentdrums.org and it's also free in the iTunes store. Just search for Development Drums. Thanks very much for listening. Everything this old earth can give And he ain't put back nothing Whoa, whoa Now it's been ten thousand years Man has cried a billion tears For what he never knew Now man's reign is through But through eternal night The twinkling of starlight So very far away Maybe it's only yesterday In the year 2525 If man is still alive If woman can survive They may fall